Most people in the world, whether they are religious or not, are familiar with the man of Moses, the great spokesman for God and the man who said, let my people go on behalf of the great creator. And you recall that on that occasion that even people in the world who may not be familiar with the Bible are familiar with a bush that burned, but yet it was not consumed. And Moses spoke back to the bush that was burning, and he says, who do I tell them sent me to say, let my people go to the great Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? And God simply said, you tell them I am. Tell them my name. Tell them Behold the God of creation, and that's the God that we serve. And there are a number of facts that come to mind as we think about the God that we serve. God is real. Hell is a real place. Heaven is a real promise. Judgment is real. And as we even spoke about in our Bible class and sang in one of our songs a few moments ago, every knee will bow. Those are facts that come from God's inspired word. We believe in our God, and I love that particular song that reminds us of the fact that we are introduced to our God on a daily basis by looking not only at his creation, but more importantly, looking at his word. I love that song. I have in my mind the idea of the curtains opening and saying, here he is, take a look at him. Because every one of us, whether we believe in him or not, whether we are young or old, whether we are from here or from elsewhere, we will one day stand before our God. And our God, as we'll talk this morning, is a God of action. He is a God who has done things, a God who does things, and a God who will continue doing things as he wishes. And that is the Lord that we serve. Thank you for being with us this morning. I hope that you'll enjoy the opportunity to be with brethren and to encourage each other. And for our visitors, we're thankful for your presence. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, to the New Testament book of Acts. If you want to read there, we're going to focus in on just three or four verses in just a moment or two. When we think about the Lord, we think about the fact that he is indeed real and hell is real and heaven is real and judgment is real and every knee shall bow is being real, that our God is a God of action. He is not a passive character. He is not someone who sits back idly while the world continues to exist. Granted, he, he gives us free will. But God is at work and has always been at work. And so I'm really giving away the biggest application of our study at the beginning rather than sharing it at the end. But I want us to begin this morning by way of introduction and to acknowledge that God is a God of action. The fact is, is God has been active and is active today. Whether we believe in him or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, he is active in life today. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, a verse that many of you could quote in verse 1, and look at the fifth word of the Bible. Think about that for just a moment. The fifth word of the Bible, in the beginning God created. By the way, in the beginning God, the fourth word is already controversial, 
The third word is controversial as well because people will question the beginning of the world and when it was put into existence and whether or not it's been here for billions of years as compared to what the Bible teaches, a much shorter period of time. But the fifth word of the Bible is this idea of that God created. God spoke into action. The fact that the land would be land and the waters would be waters, that people would exist, that animals would exist, that plant life would exist. But I'm here this morning to look at Acts chapter 13, a New Testament passage to prove that his activity didn't stop once the Bible ended. Now, he's not creating more worlds. He's not speaking to in in existence more people. They're coming in, in ways that are natural by birth such as we are waiting for anxiously today on behalf of our brother and sister Josh and Sarah. But Acts chapter 13 is a favorite text of mine for a number of reasons, but in part because it provides this synopsis of a history of the fact that God is a God of action and activity, and it's a picture of his present and future actions as well. In fact, someone would say, okay, I want you to read the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is 39 books, and I want you to have that done by tomorrow. Well, that would be a tall task for most of us, to read 39 books of the Old Testament and to do so in the course of 24 hours. Unless you're just an incredible speed reader with photographic memory, that's going to be a challenge. If you don't have the luxury of time to read all the Old Testament over the course of the next day or so, just read Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 13, for example, and you'll get a pretty good picture of everything that happens in the Old Testament, at least in a snapshot of five or 10 minutes. And that's what we're kind of going to do today by looking at a couple of verses in Acts chapter 13 as we consider five actions that God provided in times past and things that he does both in the present and in the future. But I want to start with a little review because Acts chapter 13 may not be familiar to you and you may not be familiar with what's happening in this particular part of the Bible. Acts chapters 13 and 14 provide us with an inspired summary where the Holy Spirit says, Luke, As the author of the book of Acts, I want you to write down a history of what happened when Paul and some of his friends were going about and preaching in one of his major, what we sometimes call missionary journeys or preaching journeys or teaching journeys. And in this particular case, if you go back and you read in chapter 13, you'll find a man by the name of Elymas, who was blinded by Paul in the city or in the island area of Paphos. And then this led to the belief of a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. And if you're not familiar with this, just take some time over the next few days to read through Acts chapter 13. That won't take you very long to read. And just re-familiarize yourself with some of these things. Paul then would continue on his journey to Antioch of Pisidia, and he preached as was his custom. And this was certainly customary to Paul. He would go from one city to the next. He would find believers or he would find people who he wanted to convert, Jews, as was the case early in his work. And he would teach them the gospel message. And some people were like, wow, that's wonderful. We want to believe that. We want to obey. But the majority would say, we're not interested in hearing the truth anymore. Paul here in chapter 13 introduces a sermon. 
much like we have today, a little bit shorter. Someone once said, why are the sermons in the Bible so much shorter than your sermons? I'm not, I guess because they were better than what we are as speakers today. But his sermon would take all of about eight minutes to preach, depending on how slow he was, whereas we're going to be here for at least an hour and a half today. And so uh, that's, don't panic. It's, that's, not, that's not true. I was just, just joking with you. But the fact is, as he goes, he says, I want to tell you about God. Behold our God. I want to tell you about the Christ. And so on this particular occasion, I want you to note five actions of the Lord. And to do so, I want to read there in Acts chapter 13, and I want us to read about three or four verses, beginning in verse 16. It says that Paul stood up. I was thinking about this little phrase here. Um, Last night late, as I was falling asleep, motioning with his hand. I was thinking about that. I didn't put anything on the screen about motioning with his hand. We have hand gestures uh, that we understand. I want to make two points. Our younger people would understand that. Uh, I want you to look at the left hand, and I want you to look at the right hand, looking at the audience. We do things with our hands to try to emphasize a particular point. And I don't know if that's what Paul was doing. Maybe he was saying, come closer, because I want to tell you something very important. And maybe he didn't want to have to to yell and get his crug. But he motions with his hand there in verse 16. And I want you to read verses 16, and I want you to look at the verbs. Now, I don't want that to to conjure up any uh, alarms or bad memories of being back in fifth grade and understanding subject and verbs, but I'll help you with the verbs. And if I can understand them with my education, believe me, anybody can get this. But in verse 16, men of Israel and you who fear God, speaking to his audience, he says, I want you to listen. I'm going to say something that's very important. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Now it goes on in the next few verses, and there are more verbs that we could explore, but I was really struck by this a few months back when I thought about writing this particular sermon. But I want us to note those five verbs, and I've given away the biggest application, you know where we're going, that these are things that God did, God does, and God will do. And the first is that God chose. Everyone loves to feel chosen, whether it be by your spouse, whether it be by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe an employer, maybe by the new team. We like being chosen to be added. But note, if you would, who God chose, particularly our fathers. And we don't have the time to go through this in great depth, but I appreciate Brother Phil really kind of talking about this a little bit in in chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews in our Bible class this morning. But Abraham would have been what some would call the dean of the fathers. In fact, we sometimes refer to Abraham, this is the Abraham of the Bible, as our father. Even though our father is God, we understand that Father Abraham is a term that is used in an an accommodative way, that he is the father of many nations. 
I wanna go through and breeze through very quickly about six different passages. And we're gonna read them, we're gonna make maybe 30 seconds worth of comments about them, and then we're gonna move on a little bit further just to prove my point. Pretend that you're talking with someone who is not familiar with Abraham. Well, you gotta go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And as good Bible students, you would know you've gotta go back to the book of Genesis if you're gonna talk about Abraham. Now, there are other places that you can go to, and we'll do that briefly, but in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17, you find where God comes to this man, Abram or Abraham, depending on the the time of his life, and he says to him in verse 1 of chapter 12, for example, I want you to leave your country. Now, if a voice came to you, the Lord came to you and says, I want you to leave Rutherford County. I want you to leave wherever your home is. And you say, well, where am I going? I'm not going to tell you. How long am I going to be there? I'm not going to tell you that either. Just pack your bags and go. You might be a little bit unnerved and a little bit alarmed and a little bit uncertain. We like plans as human beings and we like itineraries and we like being able to know where we're going and when we're going and and all those things. But God says, go, go away from your family, from everything you've ever known. I'm broadly paraphrasing Genesis 12. And I'm going to make for you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name and your heritage great. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What happened here is that God says, Abram or Abraham, I'm choosing you. You are a man of faith, as we'll read later in our text, but I'm going to use you to be a great man of faith and a father to many nations. And so if you go to Genesis 22, you read there the very famous account of Abraham and Isaac. And if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac, here it is in 20 seconds. Abraham had one son, at least one son, that came from his beloved wife, Sarah. And they had waited many years before they were going to have a child. And Isaac was born. And then 13 or 14 years after the the fact, God says, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. And Abraham says, absolutely, I will do that. And as he was ready to take the life of his son, God spared him that horror, that horrible uh, uh, obligation. And he says, I know your faith is strong. I have chosen you for a purpose. In Psalm 105, for example, and there are plenty of Psalms uh, in the various Psalms that uh, are found in the 150 collection. In 105 and verse 42, very briefly, it says, he remembered, there's the word remember, it's going back to our brother Josh talked about a few moments ago. He remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. And then three very brief passages that we'll spend just three minutes talking about here and we'll breeze through these very quickly is, Paul's letter to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 4. And if you don't have time to read the book of Romans, which is 16 chapters, which would probably take you about an hour or so, read the book of Galatians, which will take you about 20 minutes. Because in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and in other places, you see where in Abraham was the seed by way of Jesus the Christ through whom we would have redemption. And then, and I said, we're gonna go through these very quickly. Hebrews chapter six, the text that we talked about today talks about our father Abraham, not in a divine sense, but in an accommodative sense. The fact is, and this is beyond the scope of our study together this morning, the point that I'm trying to make is that God said, by way of Paul, in this sermon so many years ago, God chose our fathers, and he did so in choosing Abraham. God has chosen 
us. And that's what Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about. God said, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to make you a special people. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. I'm going to make you a peculiar people, as he would say in that particular text as well. God chose these people. But does God choose us? As we've talked about in recent sermons, absolutely he does by way of our obedience to him. And we'll come back and talk about that at the conclusion of our study together this morning. The second thing that God does, according to Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 19, is it says that God exalted. But who did he exalt? It says he exalted the people. Well, I was thinking about this over the last few weeks, and I thought about the word exalted. We sing songs entitled exalted, referring to the exalted nature of God or of Jesus or of our Savior. And it is a powerful word. It is a powerful concept. What does it mean? It literally means the idea of elevation or someone of rank. And so someone in the military or who had previously served in the military would understand rank, would understand the idea of a commanding officer or someone who was your superior. Even those of us in work environments, we understand that we have a supervisor who has some sort of authority over us. And while we might never think about exalting them, the idea is, is that they are higher and that they have some more power, that they have some more authority. In the New King James Version, from which I'm preaching this morning, the word is used some 130 times, and it is almost exclusively used to refer to the Lord. However, there are occasions where it talks about us being exalted. In fact, we know that if we humble ourselves, the Lord will do what to us? He will exalt us, depending on the version of the Bible from which you read. But Paul, here on this particular occasion, here in Acts chapter 13, speaks to the people of Israel as the ones who are elevated by the Lord. And I thought that was interesting. There's so much we could say about that. I want to look at one psalm here in just a moment. But very early on in his introduction, because this is really just the introduction, men come together, I have something to say to you. He motioning with his hand, and here he speaks his introduction. He gets into the heart of the sermon in the next 20 verses or so. But what does he say here? He says, God has elevated someone. He has put someone in a position of importance, of authority. And who is that? Well, in Psalm 37 and in verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. You and I are exalted by our God. We are raised up. Now, we have the responsibility of, of humility and recognizing that without God, we are absolutely nobody. But God, who took a people who were not a people, has made them, in the New Testament words, a people. And we are special because of that. Number three, it says that God delivered. In the New American Standard, I actually like the way the New American Standard renders this. It says that God led them out. And he did so, depending on the version from which you are reading, with a strong hand or an uplifted hand. God is not weak in his ability to lead us, but he is strong and he is uplifted. And there's something to be said by being led by the hand. You watch a mother with her children crossing a busy street. 
You watch a parent or a father with his children uh, in a dangerous situation, and he or she will gather the children close and hold on to them and will not do so loosely, especially if it's a child that's wanting to run away or to maybe not be as focused as he or she should be. You hold on to that child tightly as you go wherever you're going to go because you care and you want to deliver. Now, one really needs to be familiar with the history of the Lord's people in order to really appreciate this. So I've given you a lot of assignments. Read the Old Testament by tomorrow. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Romans. You won't be eating for a couple of days. You'll be so busy reading. But the fact is, is Acts chapter 7 provides a great synopsis of this, does it not? With that great sermon, another wonderful text, it got Stephen in an awful lot of trouble. You know, sometimes we preach sermons and people say, that was a wonderful sermon. Thank you so much for preaching that. And I believe it and I will obey it. And then sometimes they will kill you. And we, we, we you know, and it's okay to, to chuckle at that because uh, sometimes people don't like what we say. We live in a country where fortunately, most people will not kill us for speaking the truth. They may not like it. There may be those that you preach to, that you teach, that you try to share the gospel with that say, I'm just not interested in hearing any more of that. But you're probably not going to lose your life. Or Stephen was stoned to death. They, they literally took stones and they threw it at him until he died. And the, what, what crime did he commit? He spoke the truth because he cared about people and wanted them to be delivered. And so to be delivered means that there has to be a desperate need on the part of the person needing a rescue. And so you go back to Acts chapter 13, and you go back to the fact that it says God with a, with a uplifted, powerful, strong, firm hand delivered the people because they needed it. What did they need deliverance from? Slavery. Bondage, no freedom, no ability, no knowledge of God, at least in the sense that they needed to be reintroduced to God as Moses himself, as we talked about in Exodus chapter three, a few moments at the introduction. But the fact is, is God delivered these people. And then there's a fourth thing. And we have three words, at least in the New King James Version, for a single likely Greek word that was used where it says, God put up with. The NIV, which is a version that some of you may read from to study from time to time, uh, is an interesting translation where it says, God endured their conduct. Have you ever endured someone else's conduct? Maybe a, a child's conduct? You, you put up with it? You endured it for a while. Uh, or maybe you are on the workplace and you're the foreman or you're the one supervising your fellow employees and you put up with the fact that they're goofing around for a while and eventually you say, all right, it's time to really get down to business. I'm done putting up with enduring your conduct. Originally, as I mentioned, it is one word in the original language. And I found it interesting that this is the only occasion that this particular word is used in the New Testament. Now, some have suggested, and I would not be dogmatic about this, but some have suggested that it carries a meaning similar to nourishing or caring for by using passages like Numbers chapter 14. You can explore that on your own as part of your assignment as well when you're reading the Old Testament. 
The point that I'm simply making here is this, is this application, and that is God endures with us and is indeed long-suffering. We know in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, a passage that is a favorite of many, that God is not slack or slow concerning his promises, but is patient or is long-suffering, depending on what version you're reading from, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to change or to repentance. That's the God. Behold our God, a God who puts up with us. And I'm thankful I would say, I don't know about you, but I know about you. We are all thankful that God has put up with us long enough. Now, there's going to come a time where he will not put up with our disobedience any longer. This world will come to an end. Our lives will come to an end, and we will stand before our God in judgment. And we won't be able to then plead our case based on what is taught in Second or First Thessalonians and in other passages, for there is finality with death. There is finality associated with this world coming to an end, wherein we have to be ready to give an answer for the way that we have lived our lives. But God says, I'm, I'm patient. I'll work with you to a point. That's the God that puts up with you. And I'm fortunate that he's put up with me for 40-some years as well. Which brings you to the fifth and the final thing that God has done. And it says here that God defended. And it seems to me in defending his people, the Lord took on two very important steps. One is he destroyed the enemies of the people. You remember that not only did the people have to get out of Egypt, but once they got to the land where they were going to live... Things were not splendid there because he gave them a command. You've got to go in and clear out that land. Now I'm going to give it to you. You've got to trust me. That's Numbers chapter 14. Remember where the spies, uh, five, six of them, 10 out of 12 says, we can't do it. They're, they're too big. They're too plentiful. And the people have got weapons that just are insurmountable. But if two of them said, we can do it. Not because we are more talented, but because who's on our side? The Lord's on our side. We can take the land. God says, I'll defend you against those people. And he delivered that land or gave them the land as referenced in Joshua chapter 14. There are so many Psalms that memorialize the giving of the land, the defending of the people, and the providing salvation to the people that we could look at. I want to look just at three very briefly. One in, one in, in Psalm 5, one in the 20th Psalm, and then one in the 59th Psalm. So just very quickly here, look with me if you would at just three verses from this book of poetry and songs of the ancient followers of God some 3,000 or so years ago. It says in verse 11, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy. And the reason we are shouting for joy is because you, our God, defend them. There in verse 11. You may have the word protect, the same concept there. You defend or you protect. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. 
drop over maybe just uh, three or four pages because the Psalms are so short and look at Psalm 20. And there in the introduction to David's masterful work, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob do what? Defend you or set you on high or put you in a safe location. God says, I'll defend you. And we like being defended. When someone attacks your character, you want your spouse or your child, or your parents to say, whoa, 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 don't say that about him. Or when someone complains at work and maybe uh, someone, a coworker comes and says, no, 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 she's a hard worker. That's not her fault that this fell through. We like it when people defend us. And that's what our God does. And then thirdly, over in Psalm 59, perhaps a psalm that you're a little bit more familiar with than maybe some of the others. But there in the introductory words of Psalm 59, the text says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. The new King James says, defend me from those who rise up against me. Let me share with you. I started with a series of four or five facts God is real, heaven is real, hell is real, judgment is real, every knee shall bow. Those are five facts that we agree to. Here's another fact. Without God on your side, you're defenseless. You are open to attack without the Lord. In this life, and more importantly, in the life to come when we stand before God on the day of judgment. Let me ask this question before we conclude with a very simple yet profound answer, and that is, is God active today? I already gave you the answer, and if you were pondering whether or not he was, I think by this point you know where that answer is. We've got to acknowledge that, first of all, that God is real and he is lasting in his existence. Psalm 14 echoes the thoughts, or Psalm 53 echoes the thoughts of Psalm 14, depending on the way you look at it, that our brother Keith read for us a few moments ago. But Psalm 14, I made reference to this a couple of weeks ago. I got in trouble for this on Facebook a number of years ago, where it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I didn't make that statement. The Lord made that statement. There is a God, he is alive, in him we live and we survive, as we sometimes sing. And secondly, we acknowledge that our God is still active today. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, four chapters further in the, in the text, you find where Paul is preaching in Athens, the ancient city that still exists today. And he says, God, God who exists he made the world and everything in it. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's not worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything. He has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from us. God says, I want you to search for me, but you won't search long if you have a heart that is open to the truth. And that's the wonderful thing about the gospel message. And we have all seen that. I'm confident that we've all known of someone who says, I'm searching for the truth. I wanna do what's right. And they find it in the gospel. Now you may find it by the aid of a preacher or a friend or a coworker or a sibling or a, uh, a schoolmate. But ultimately the power is not in those individuals. It is in the gospel. 
But let me just simply ask this. What is God doing today? The caveat, the, the warning, the statement to cover our bases is he's not creating new news. He's not delivering new statements in his word. In fact, the New Testament says if someone comes to you with new words, Galatians chapter one, let him be accursed. So this book we believe is real. There's, I guess, our seventh fact of the day. And we believe that it is inspired by our God such that we say with an exclamation mark that yes, God is active today. And so how is he active? Well, we won't take the time to read these three or four passages here. We'll just quote from them and make brief references to them. But number one, God chooses you and God chooses me in Christ Jesus. And again, there is some uh, trepidation with the idea of the idea of God choosing us because of what some religious people would say today in various denominations. But God chose you. God chose me. And we were obedient to his calling, allowing us to be called his children by his divine grace. The fact is, is God exalts you and God exalts me by way of our humility, as is written in Luke chapter 14, or Luke chapter 18 and other places. Does God deliver you and deliver me? Absolutely. First Corinthians chapter 10 talks about that. Second Peter chapter two references that. God is still in the delivering business. God is still enduring with us as referenced in second Peter three verse nine. If he wasn't enduring with us, then what we are doing today is a colossal waste of time. Think about that. If God's not enduring with us and he's given up on us, we might as well give up on him. But we will not give up on him because he does not give up on us. We will remember him, as Josh pointed out, because he remembers us, but remembers our sins no more. That's the God that we serve. Behold our God. And the last thing is that God defends you and me. I wanna end with this passage, one of the most beloved passages in all the book of Romans that people of all generations have appreciated where it says, who shall bring a charge against the elect of God? It's God who justifies. Who is he who's gonna condemn? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then another question, verse 35, who's gonna separate us from the love of Christ? Would it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for slaughter. Yes, difficult things may happen to us as Christians. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, I am persuaded. I know without a doubt, fact number eight, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from God if we are obedient to him. That's a fact. I suppose I could have titled this lesson Facts of Our Lord as opposed to Actions of Our Lord. But I think it's important that we know that God is a God of action and a God of facts, that God is real, 
Hell is real. Heaven is real. Judgment is real. And every knee will bow, as Paul says to the church at Philippi. You know, there are members here and visitors and people who you are familiar with who are suffering with physical difficulties, financial stresses, spiritual weaknesses. Everyone, one person said, is carrying some burden. Everyone's got something you're carrying. Whether it be sadness or disappointment or loneliness, those are real things. But the greatest cure for sadness and disappointment and loneliness is to turn to the one who delivers. I can't guarantee you that if you become a Christian that you won't have periods of sadness or disappointment or loneliness. But I know of a God who says, look at me, trust me, fix your eyes on me, focus on me going forward, and I'll make things better for you. Behold our God. That's the God we serve. And that's the God that we're asking you to serve today. There are many who are here this morning who've already been baptized into water to have their sins washed away. In fact, the majority of those who are present, because I know, have made the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But there are those who may have never made that confession, who are still struggling whether or not to make that choice. We are encouraging and we are not shy to beg that you would make a change in your life to say, I want to believe in this Jesus the Christ and I want to serve him going forward and I want to do all that I can to please him because after all, he's very active and I love the fact that that God provides for me. If you are here and you need to make that confession and you need to be baptized, having repented of your sins, we would welcome the opportunity to help you If as a child of God, someone who's already made those choices, you need to make some sort of correction, some course alteration in your life, we would welcome the opportunity to help you with that as well. We can assist you in any way spiritually. We're going to stand and sing the song that's been selected to encourage you at this time.